This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. They look eerily similar to rivers on land, but unlike terrestrial rivers, which tend to flatten out, these things start to cut down. Raging whitewater, hydraulic jumps, and then will intersect a crack, and they plummet to the bed of the ice sheet, and they tunnel their way out and burst out either in fjords in the ocean, or they rage over the land in these big, muddy, braided rivers and enter the ocean that way. Glaciers are known to be the source of many rivers. Today's episode is a peek into how a river at a glacier begins, how the very top of the glacier melts and creates supra-glacial rivers. Supra means above, on top of. In application of that definition with a river and a glacier, it simply means the river that is on top of the glacier. Last month, the River Radius published an interview with Dr. Lawrence C. Smith about his book, Rivers of Power. Dr. Smith conducts research about superglacial rivers, and an unpublished portion of that original interview was about those rivers and how he performs that research. That topic became more than I could publish in the episode about his book because we stayed on the topic of superglacial rivers for so long. So today's episode is that conversation with Dr. Smith about superglacial rivers. Dr. Smith is a professor of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences at Brown University in Rhode Island. Prior to his position at Brown, Dr. Smith taught at UCLA for 20 plus years and was chair of the Geography Department. He has written two books, The World in 2050, and his most recent book, Rivers of Power, which we discuss at length in an episode published on May 11th of this year. Dr. Smith has spent a significant amount of time over the past 12 years on top of the Greenland ice sheet researching supraglacial rivers. You will hear Dr. Smith suggest viewing different videos. In the show notes, in your podcast player, you can find links to the video he references with NASA and the New York Times. I also suggest you viewing these glaciers in the videos. They are beautiful, important, and vastly unique. Please welcome Dr. Lawrence C. Smith. The last 12 years, I have been uh, studying supraglacial rivers, supraglacial rivers on Greenland, on the Greenland ice sheet. These are crazy. If you want to see some wild imagery, just Google supraglacial rivers, Greenland, and you'll see these things. They are as blue as pool water. They are raging over the surface of the melting Greenland ice sheet at higher and higher elevations. And uh, in Southwest Greenland in particular, in the melt zone of the ice sheet, these are everywhere. Uh, we've Using satellite imagery, we have mapped uh, hundreds of these things. And they look eerily similar to rivers on land. I mean, they, they meander, they have um, you know, many headwaters that come together into a single main stem. But unlike on land, uh, their main stems are interrupted. They flow maybe 10 to 20 kilometers, getting more and more water as they go because it's all sourced by the melting ice sheet. As they flow downstream, unlike terrestrial rivers, which tend to flatten out their slope as you go downstream, these things start to cut down these chasms, just raging white water, hydraulic jumps, just crazy. And then we'll intersect a crack. And when they intersect a crack in the ice sheet, they become captured and they plummet to the bed of the ice sheet and they melt a hole, a sinkhole called a moulin. And our research in Southwest Greenland, which believe it or not, these things had received hardly any study until a few years ago when my 
the students and I started studying these things, virtually all of these superglacial rivers in southwest Greenland fall into moulons. And from there, they plummet down to the bed of the ice sheet and they tunnel their way out and burst out either in fjords in the ocean or they rage over the land and these big muddy braided rivers and enter the ocean that way. So it's a direct connection between surface melting of the Greenland ice sheet and, and sea level rise. And we've been studying these things, not just from space, but with field expeditions. And in 2012, 14, and 15, uh, and 16, we visited these things and actually set up expedition camps next to a big one and using a helicopter, strung cableways across the superglacial river, cordoned and taped it all off for safety. Obviously, this is a place where the safety measures must be taken to an extreme. And using an ADCP, an acoustic Doppler current profiler, towed back and forth across the river, we measured the discharge every hour continuously for one full week around the clock. And these rivers erode because there's no sediment in them, but they thermally erode. They're carving their beds so quickly that you can't just use a standard U.S. geological survey style reading curve. The way you usually measure discharge at all the USGS stations or, you know, around the country is you measure water level all the time with a recorder. And every now and then you go measure discharge in the river, you know, getting into the water. And then you create a little calibrating reading curve relating water level to measure discharge. And then you can just use that curve to convert all your continuously recorded water levels to discharge. That won't work in these superglacial rivers because their shape is changing so fast. You have to actually just take the actual discharge measurement all the time, every hour. So we've just last month published these data. They're available online, as well as all the hydrological ADCP raw files. We have used them. The reason we went through all this effort is twofold. First, we use them to validate and test climate models that are being run right now to predict runoff contributions from Greenland to global sea level rise. And these are critical tools for us because they're the only tool we have to predict what sea level rise from Greenland will be like in the future. We can't measure in the future. We need climate models. We need to run the climate models to know what the runoff will be. Until we started doing this work, no one had actually validated and tested the climate models because nobody had discharge data from these rivers. So we did that, and we actually found that the climate models are overpredicting, which is sort of good news, right? They're a little bit too high, but we also found the physical reason why. Basically, there's refreezing. The water is soaking into the ice. The, the ice is getting kind of rotten and fragmented, and it's not all running off like a parking lot. Some of it is soaking into the ice and refreezing in place, and that's why the models were off of that. Is that refreezing? Is that sort of like water soaking into an ice water table? Into an ice water table? Yeah, so I'm thinking yeah. that if the water's soaking into this ice that's fractured a little bit or that's like kind of rotten, it, seems, it sounds to me very similar to how water in a riverbed um, I just learned this in a, a few shows ago, moves through that hyperreic zone and, and soaks into the water table. Is that a similar it, occurrence? It's similar to that, but it's not so much soaking in the river channel itself, but it's on the surrounding ice skate. Because what the models assume, the climate models assume that the surface of the melting ice sheet, once it gets to be bare ice with no snow on it, once it's bare ice, it's treated as a hockey rink or a parking lot. It's impermeable. Therefore, any energy that melted the ice that equivalent runoff is assumed to be flow off the parking lot with perfect efficiency, and 100% of it is gone. But in reality, what we've learned is that the sun is 
penetrating the ice, it's melting it underneath, it's getting it all rotten and broken up. And some of that water is, it's not a parking lot, it's more like a gravel parking lot. And some of it is soaking in and sticking around and actually refreezing at night, and some of it's getting out. But that part that's staying behind is being credited to the ocean by the climate models, when in fact, a little bit of it is being retained by the ice sheet. So this is just a great example of how um, field expeditions and field ex and scientists work together with modelers, because all the climate model is, is it's, it's a summary of our latest, you know, our best understanding of the physical processes. And the models have been getting better and better since the 1960s, because the modelers work with field people. The field people say, hey, your model isn't quite right. Here's the measurements, here's the missing process. The missing process goes into the model and guess what? It's a little, it's a little better now. And so field scientists and modelers have been working hand in hand like this for a long time, which is why our models are so good and they're getting even better. Um, and um, it's important that we do that for these superglacial rivers on the Greenland ice sheet, because while there are no people around them, obviously, uh, they affect us all because that's ground zero for the melting ice sheet, which is pushing up sea levels all around the planet, which really affects Delta cities, which is where most coastal people live. Most coastal people, don't actually live on coasts, they're living on river deltas on the coast. And those river deltas are low gradient, they are subsiding, they're prone to flooding anyway, and they're particularly vulnerable to sea level rise, which a good share of it is coming from the melting Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic ice sheet. How long, this is, uh, this is one of those what if questions sort of, uh, how long is the ice gonna last on Greenland? Are you and I gonna see Greenland's ice melt off in our lifetimes or is it going to last past our lifetimes no but you're seeing it melt off right now like disappear completely disappear completely no my gosh we're talking two three thousand years for that to happen greenland is very vulnerable to melting the only reason it exists right now at all is by virtue of itself and what i mean by that it's a relic of the last ice age if you look at a globe like you don't see ice sheets everywhere else. And then here's Greenland with this big glob of ice pretty far south. Like what's it doing there? It's, it's a relic. If you were to somehow magically snatch the ice sheet off of that island, it would not regrow today. It would not reform. So it exists because it's so high elevation that in the wintertime, it doesn't thaw at the top. So snow just continues to accumulate up there and it flows down and it melts at the bottom. But because the interior never melts, it's high and above the the freezing line, it, it continues to exist. That's not the case with Antarctica. Antarctica is super cold. If that thing ever starts melting everywhere, like the, it must mean the planet is, you know, a burnt rock. But Greenland, the danger from Antarctica is ice, solid ice sliding into the ocean and melting there. But, but Greenland, it's, it's, it's from melting. And so will we see it in our lifetimes? No. Uh, is it a, you know, runaway accelerating process? Probably not. But is it melting like crazy? Yes. And is it disappearing? Yes. You know, it remains to be seen whether we can stabilize the climate sufficiently to halt that process or not. But Greenland has been a negative mass balance now for many years, and all indicators are that it will continue to be so. What does a negative mass balance mean? All glaciers gain mass in the winter from snowfall, and they lose mass in the summer from melting out of their toes. The net outcome of that is called the mass balance. So if it's a positive mass balance, that means it's on average over the year gaining more mass than it's losing. A negative mass balance means it's, it's losing more mass at the bottom than it's gaining at the top. So it's in severe negative mass balance mode. And, and so therefore it's, it's losing mass. 
even though new snow is landing in the interior, new ice is forming each year, even more of it is melting out at the bottom each year. When these rivers are on top of the glacier, and then you said they they find a crack in the surface of the ice and they, they dive down, and you call them, I think, moulons, are these going... I'm assuming they go to various levels that they might move into another crack of the ice and, and then again go horizontally, but it feels like they're also po- probably often going all the way to the earth. Is that, can you just talk yes. more about what's happening there? Sure. Most of them plummet more or less straight down and reach the bed. And from there, they pressurize the subglacial system. They flood that you know, that, that there's an interface between the bedrock and the overlying ice. And obviously the very high pressure system, there's a lot of weight bearing down there. This, this water nonetheless also has pressure of its own. And so what it does is it hits the bed and from there, either if a film or little tunnels floods and lubricates the bed of the ice sheet and accelerates ice sliding. In fact, the paper we just published last month in geophysical research letters, so this would have been March, 2021, studied that because when we were up there with our ADCP measuring every hour for a week, we also sunk a GPS, a survey grade GPS into the ice surface and measured the ice velocity. And what we measured were these huge annual, these daily cycles in river discharge, which by the way, we posted a video of it. Um, NASA posted a video of it. I can send you a link, but it's of a time-lapse camera of this river going up and down and up and down and up and down. And a few hours later, the ice surges from the GPS. Boom. So the river goes up and down. Boom. The ice surges. Boom. River goes up and down. The ice surges for a brief instant. So the ice is lurching its way down the hill, down slope, driven by these daily pulses in superglacial river discharge. So, yeah, it, there's a direct interaction between superglacial river flow and ice sliding, which of course also is the other way that ice sheets contribute to global sea level rise because they slide down, they calve and break into the water and you know it melts from there. So you said you put this, uh, this cable crossing across these rivers to measure the outflow. What is the discharge that you're seeing on these glacial rivers? We measured over 30 cubic meters per second, which is pretty good size. Uh, you certainly wouldn't want to fall in and be swept away. Is that, in rough math, is that... 270 cfs let's uh am i doing simple math and not expanded math let me let me pull up a (laughs) convert cubic meters per second to cfs it's over a thousand and these glacial rivers are they are they just crystal clear water oh man they they are they're blue they're crystal clear they're super chilled. They're right at about zero degrees Celsius. Yeah, zero degrees Celsius. Yes, and right at right at the freezing point. They're like the barest fraction of a degree above zero. They're kind of scary because they you don't have a lot of rocks and plants and bed resistance. They're shoots almost like a slip and slide park at an amusement park. It's, it kind of looks like that, except rather than you know a fiberglass thing carrying shoot carrying the water, it's the whole landscape covered with these things. And they just, the water just barrels along and you can hear the rumbling of the moulin just going a few hundred meters away. It's pretty, 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 pretty crazy place to work. So a few episodes ago, 
kind of a companion episode to this one. Actually, we I interviewed uh, Dr. David Montgomery, hydrologist, oh, talking yeah. about talking about rivers and kind of yeah, like, he's uh, great. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation, and talking about the, really the, the what is a river getting now to that scientific level. There's so much crossover in what you are talking about with what he talked about. He brought into the conversation the frictional resistance of the the riverbed as one of the the great kind of features of the river. So I'm thinking about these rivers on these glaciers. It seems like the frictional resistance is just is water, but as ice. So you have the, this this water flowing being resisted by its cousin, water that is ice. Is that is that I mean, is there anything else that's creating friction? Yeah, that that is a, a great and very astute comment, and it's something I'm, I'm fascinated by myself because um, there is still friction. Uh, you know, there's friction even in a concrete, smooth concrete, uh, you know, sewer pipe. There's there's friction, but it there's less friction than there is uh, in a, a trout stream with cobbles and you know sediments of very size. And and furthermore, the river is not because there's not no sediment to erode. The river is overly energetic because it cannot expend some of its energy to transport sediment. That energy is is un, you know, not being consumed. So there's more energy in the water, which and and it, it instead it expends, it, it erodes through thermal erosion as well as you know physical movement rather than the physical movement of, of sediment clasps. So uh, the reason I, I really like your question is that. Um, as you and your listeners know, there's a, a deep wealth of knowledge in a whole subfield of geomorphology called fluvial geomorphology and fluvial hydraulics that studies the interaction of water and sediment and bed resistance in terrestrial rivers. And the role of sediment and sediment transport is a key part of why rivers look the way they do and how their energetics and hydraulics behave. But on the ice sheet, there's no sediment, there's none. Yet we still have these rivers flowing over a substrate. So it provides this really scientifically fascinating opportunity to study you know, what is a river without sediment? Missing one of the key dimensions that makes rivers look and behave the way they do because so much of how a river acts ultimately comes down to its number one job, which is to move sediment downstream. So it piles it up in some places, it erodes it in other places. It, it's what it does. It's a conveyor belt of rock from the mountains to the sea. Remember earlier I said there was this battle between tectonics and water. Well, the rivers are the, the biggest workers in that. And on the ice sheet, there's no sediment. So how do they behave? And we're just starting to study this from a very fundamental river science point of view. Yeah, but the short answer is they behave like terrestrial rivers in some ways, like we see meandering, for example but different in, in, in others. Like they assume different forms that we just don't see on land. Like I said, if you Google superglacial river, Greenland, just look at some pictures of these things, you'll be struck by their beauty and their weirdness. And also there's similarities sometimes to rivers you're more familiar with on land. Excellent. That is, that is richly fascinating. And, and yeah, I just, I think of, uh, yeah, you uh, being near them would be, amazing and scary i think at the same time i just think of slipping and <laughs> nothing to grab well, onto. that's what kept me at night and to make that impossible what we did let me just, just lest anyone think we're daredevils or something uh first we ascertained you know, a safe location for a camp we cordoned it all off with caution tape and no one could leave that spot unless they were clipped into a leash basically 
and you roped in, even though it was flat, there's no cliffs or anything, it's perfectly flat, but then someone, an assistant would play out that rope and only give you enough to walk up to the edge of the river and not one inch more so that it's impossible to fall into the water. So we would just go right up to the edge, put the ADCP in, and then from there, we ferried it back and forth on this cableway, kind of like those old-fashioned clotheslines in New York City where you could pull on one and it would, you know, scoot across the other way. So it just would scoot back and forth. And once we got it set up, we didn't have to even get at the river's edge very often except to put the ADCP in and out of the water. But, but you're just wearing regular shoes. You don't have any extra traction on your feet. Muck boots with some studs. Even on the ice sheet, it was hot in the summer. It's 24-hour daylight. It was above freezing, obviously. I mean, everything's melting like crazy. A lot of reflected light. So, yeah, we wore jackets and fleeces sometimes, but other times we were in T-shirts. But the, the surface was soft enough that you would not just slip out from underneath yourself and yes. go sliding. It was soft and, yes. and grabby. It, okay. It's soft, melting, rotty, yeah, porous, um, crunchy. A glacial size thank you goes out to Dr. Lawrence C. Smith. You can learn more about Lawrence, his work, books, and videos of his research in the show notes. There's also a link in the show notes to the May 11 episode about his book, Rivers of Power. You can find The River Radius on Instagram and Facebook, where additional river content is published weekly. You can also find more information on our website. Those links are also in the show notes. You can contact us anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. My name is Sam Carter. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius.